Good evening. Welcome to the WBAI News. I'm Paul Durienzo, and this is the news for Wednesday, May 5th, 2021. We'll skip the headlines. A federal judge and appointee of former President Donald Trump struck down the national eviction moratorium today, potentially leaving millions of Americans at risk of losing their homes two months earlier than expected. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has banned most evictions across the country since September. The protection was going to expire in January, but President Joe Biden extended it through June. 20% of renters in the United States are struggling to keep up with their payments amid the pandemic. A spokesperson for the Department of Justice said it was planning to appeal the ruling. Housing advocates have said that the national ban is necessary to stave off an unprecedented displacement of Americans. White House spokesperson Jen Psaki quoted a recent study estimating there are 1.55 million, as 1,550,000 million <laughs> fewer evictions filed during 2020 than would be expected due to the eviction moratorium. And in local news, the school schedule for next year in New York City has a major new change, a decision to rename Columbus Day. On October 11th, School officials said the day would be renamed Indigenous Peoples Day this year. The decision got immediate pushback from some politicians. State Senators Diane Savino and Joe Adubato called the renaming decision blockheaded. And Department of Education officials quickly relented, amending the new name of the holiday to Italian Heritage Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day to celebrate the contributions and legacies of Italian Americans and recognize that Native people are the first inhabitants of the land that became our country. That's according to a spokesperson for the Department of Education. Mayor Bill de Blasio said the controversy around the name change was unfortunate, but the decision, he says, is a good one. This process wasn't handled right. I certainly didn't hear about the change, nor did the chancellor. So we spoke about it and we both agreed this was not the right way to handle things. Saying very clearly that we honor Italian-Americans, I'm an Italian-American, I could not be more proud I focus on my heritage all the time. I honor my grandparents, Giovanni and Anna, who came here from southern Italy. I've been to their hometowns. I could not feel my heritage more strongly. We have to honor that day as a day to recognize the contributions of all Italian Americans. So, of course, the day should not have been changed arbitrarily. As has been done in many parts of the country, it's a day to think about history and honor indigenous people as well. I agree with that, too. So the process wasn't right, but the end result is going to be a day to honor Italian-American heritage, a day to honor indigenous peoples. I think that's a good way forward. Mayor Bill de Blasio, but New York's top political Italian, a longtime booster of the Italian-American contribution to New York, Italian-American, I should say, is Governor Andrew Cuomo. He was almost livid at the news conference today. Let me give you a shocker. Are you ready for a shocker? I disagree with it. Columbus Day is a day where we celebrate the Italian-American contribution to this state. And by the way, it's not either or. We're not drawing lines and dividing. We celebrate the Jewish contribution, salute to Israel. Let's have a Greek parade. Let's have an Italian parade. Let's have an Asian-American parade. Celebrate everyone. You don't have to exclude Italians to celebrate indigenous people. That's New York. That's celebrating diversity. 
why insult or diminish the Italian-American contribution? Why? Columbus Day is a state holiday, and Columbus Day will stay a state holiday, and I recognize and support the Italian-American contribution to this city and state, which is significant. Governor Andrew Cuomo, WBAI's John Kane, a member of the Mohawk Nation, hosts of Resistance Radio, heard Thursdays at 3 p.m. on WBAI. Kane says the name change is a long time coming for Native Americans who felt the sting of 500 years of European domination, beginning with the voyage of Christopher Columbus. I'm a little surprised. I was I didn't realize that there was such a movement within the school district to do that. So, so I'm a, I'm a little surprised. I'm not surprised that the tensions that are flaring up between Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio over this, because I think Cuomo has weighed in pretty strongly in support of Columbus Day and has made some pretty stupid comments over the years about Columbus Day and how it has come to represent a symbol for Italian-Americans. When, if you look at it historically, Columbus wasn't really Italian. He was from Genoa, which was less on the peninsula and less tied to what people know today as Italian culture and not even getting into the atrocities that would begin with Columbus perpetrated personally by him and his men. But to make that connection between Columbus Day and Italian-American heritage, is is the way uh, Cuomo would put it, is the same argument that the people in the South, some of the, the white right on the South make about Confederate statues. It doesn't matter what the statues are really of or who those people really are as far as they're concerned. It's about Southern pride. When I hear somebody like Cuomo who can openly condemn Confederate statues and that kind of stuff, but then uses the exact same argument for for Columbus statues, uh, it, it's problematic, it's hypocritical, and it's not that strange coming from Andrew Cuomo. What is it that we don't learn in school that I, I guess some of the teachers in the school system want to change about Christopher Columbus? They make it sound like this brave explorer and trying to do all these virtuous characteristics. But the reality is he was trying to make money. He believed against what everybody else believed, that the earth was small enough that if he sailed to the west, he could make it to the east, essentially. He could get all the way around to uh, Indonesia, not India, and everybody gets confused about this, but to the Indies and what Europeans were calling the East Indies. He believed he could come up with a route that didn't require going through hostile territories and that kind of stuff. He died believing he had reached the easternmost islands of the East Indies. What it demonstrates is his failure as a sailor, as a navigator. Obviously, he wasn't a great mathematician because he got, had he not run in, into an entire hemisphere that was unbeknownst to him, they all would have died at sea. They never would have made it. They were closer to the Indies when he was in port in Spain than at any other time during, uh, during his, tra- his travels. If you tell the truth about Columbus, just from a, from a, a navigator and explorer skill set, he's pretty much a failure. Because he didn't make his way to the riches that he had promised, he would actually begin the first transatlantic slave trade. But it wasn't bringing Africans to the Western Hemisphere. It was bringing Native people from the Caribbean back to Spain. Some of those slaves were, were young girls that were being uh, put out there as sex slaves. But what do you think should happen next? Well, about the holiday, that's still a little confusing, is because they're going to try to make it a shared holiday between Italian-Americans and uh, Italian-American heritage, I assume, and Indigenous Peoples Day. So I'm not sure how they're going to navigate that. But I think some truth needs to be told. I, mean, I think the truth of Columbus does need to be taught to counter the false narrative that's been put out there for, again, since we were kids. And 
That is John Kane from the program Resistance Radio, heard Thursdays at 3 p.m. on WBAI. He is a member of the Mohawk Nation. And as a grandson of immigrants from Italy and Central Europe, who's visited Italy and loves everything having to do with Italian culture, the dethroning of Christopher Columbus is a long time in coming. And Governor Cuomo was busy with other state work. Last night, he signed a bill um, that was introduced by Senators Leroy Comrie and Assemblymember Daniel O'Donnell that automatically restores voting rights to former incarcerated individuals convicted of a felony. The law adds 30,000 voters to the rolls. Uh, who had been previously denied the right to vote by a felony conviction. O'Donnell says New York is breaking from the American tradition of being the incarceration nation. So anybody who is living under those restrictions is living a life that's not a criminal life. Because if they were living a criminal life, all those things would expose that. What the governor signed it, I wrote this bill in 2005, And among the things we now know is that parolees who vote are much less likely to get rearrested again. We want people to reintegrate into society, and this is one of the things that society does, is that we vote. Why did they do this in the past? We are the incarceration nation. We incarcerate more people than anybody else in the world. And we've always used that as a mechanism to keep black and brown people down. And so uh, people were inherently afraid of those people who have been convicted of crime and those who are convicted of a crime and sent to prison are proportionally black and brown people. So they were it was an attempt to disenfranchise a crowd of people that they didn't want around. And that is assembly member. I'm just going to go to that. I'm really sorry. I got lost. There we go. Assembly member Daniel O'Donnell. At the beginning of his talk, he was speaking of stringent parole rules that control the actions of people released from prison on parole and pretty much prevent them from committing any sort of crime. According to a news release, the newly signed law amends election law to require the automatic restoration of voting rights upon a New Yorker's release from prison. Under this new system, criminal defendants will be informed before conviction and sentencing to prison that they will lose their voting rights. Prior to their release, the Department of Corrections and Probation and Parole will assist with voter registration to ensure a smooth transition to civic participation. Meanwhile, in Washington, a federal judge has accused the Justice Department and then Attorney General William P. Barr of misleading the court and public to hide how he decided that President Donald Trump should not be charged with obstructing special counsel Robert Mueller's Russian investigation. U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson of Washington ordered the release Monday of a 2019 memo prepared by the department's Office of Legal Counsel. Barr had sought to keep the memo secret, asserting it was part of the department's internal decision-making process before he selectively announced the Mueller report's finding that March. The judge accused Barr of a lack of candor. Noah Bookbinder is president of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. I don't think this memorandum is going to tell us new information about the facts of what happened and what Donald Trump did. Donald Trump took a lot of steps to undermine that investigation and prevent special counsel Mueller and his team from learning what had happened. 
parts of the judge's decision are redacted. So we won't even know the full extent of what she said until this issue of an appeal is resolved. From what we can tell, it looks like that memo will make clear that everybody understood, everybody at the Justice Department understood that for reasons other than the merits of the case, they were not going to prosecute Donald Trump. This idea that that it was up to the attorney general to parse out the evidence and decide whether it was enough to file charges against Donald Trump was a charade. That wasn't really what was going on. They had already made their mind up that they couldn't or wouldn't prosecute Donald Trump. And so what it came down to was how the attorney general was going to spin it. And that's really what he was doing. So any possibility of a replay of Nixon, the last time we had a president go at it with his own Department of Justice, Richard M. Nixon. What happened, particularly in the time when Bill Barr was the attorney general, is really unlike anything we've seen before, even including the Justice Department under Richard Nixon. You had an attorney general who saw it as his job to use the resources of the Justice Department and the justice system in the United States to protect the president politically and personally. So he was out there trying to get his department to dismiss charges against friends and allies of the president or to lower their sentencing recommendations for friends and allies of the president. There were times where potential legal actions seemed to be bandied about to go after people that the president didn't like. It was a sort of systematic use of the department to be kind of a political arm and a protection for the president. That's something that didn't really happen under Nixon, where it really didn't go beyond a couple of decisions of the attorney general himself, and ultimately the department stood up. Here, Attorney General Barr really seemed to do everything in his power to use as much of the department as possible for the benefit of Donald Trump. There were people who tried to stand up to him with with limited success. The Justice Department Attorney General Merrick Garland really needs to go in there and examine everything that happened, reverse decisions that were made for corrupt reasons, put into place more protections and controls to make sure the department remains independent. And as to whether there will be consequences for or Bill Barr or anybody else, that remains an open question. You know, we'll see what happens once we get this memo in this case and, and otherwise, you know, wh- whether there are opportunities for consequences for those who really perverted the justice system for the president's game. And Noah Bookbinder is president of Citizens for Responsible, uh, Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Former President Donald Trump won't return to Facebook, at least not yet. Four months after Facebook suspended Trump's accounts, having concluded that he incited violence leading to the deadly January 6th Capitol riot, the company's quasi-independent oversight board upheld the bans. But the board also told Facebook to specify how long the ban would last, saying its indefinite ban on the former president was unreasonable. The ruling gives Facebook six months to comply, effectively postponing any possible Trump reinstatement and puts the onus for that decision squarely back on the company. Heidi Byrick is a co-founder and chief strategist for the Global Project Against Hate. This oversight board that was created by Facebook, we have to keep that in mind, 
actually basically kicked the can back to Facebook to make a decision on whether Trump remains banned on the platform. And what's interesting about this is if you read the ruling, it's not just about yes or no on Trump, but they actually pointed out how many problems there are in Facebook's policies. In other words, their content moderation is a mess. They don't um, apply the same rules to political figures as they do to others. And there's a whole question that the Facebook Oversight Board says, you need to completely change the way you do this moderation, the way you handle political leaders. They're really asking Facebook to change the way its business model functions right now. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens in six months from the position of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Trump has been a serial violator of Facebook's rules, and he probably should have been banned a long time ago for hate speech and other things that don't comply with their community standards. So whatever this ends up being, it's definitely too little, too late. Facebook doesn't have specific rules. Although Facebook has community standards against things like hate speech, they made exceptions for Trump. This actually started during the 2015 campaign when he called for the Muslim ban on Facebook. The entire staff there at Facebook said that violates our community standards. This shouldn't be allowed. And Mark Zuckerberg, on his own, decided to allow Trump to get an exception. And those exceptions got bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And the excuse that Facebook kept giving is, well, this is newsworthy content. He's a political figure. We shouldn't decide on political speech. And by the time you got to 2020, there was like so many holes in their rules that you could drive a Mack truck through it. Not just Trump drive through that but all kinds of authoritarian leaders around the world, like Prime Minister Modi in India, who incited violence against Muslims, the president of the Philippines, who used Facebook to demonize his opponents. The list goes on. So by making that little loophole back in 2015, they ultimately ended up with one set of rules for people like you and I, and a whole other set of rules for political figures who, of course, can do the most damage if they motivate their followers against particular people. Is this about influence or money? about money this is all about advertising one part of the loopholes was to allow political advertising not to be fact-checked which is very unusual and you wouldn't find that for example at a newspaper this is about engagement on facebook the more people who look at posts the more money they make from ads so everything is driven by very popular people on the platforms who drive content and drive engagement it's about the bottom line and Heidi Byrick, in somewhat related news, not directly related, but because of who's been using Facebook in order to contact and connect with other people in our society, which has been causing so much problems, an avowed United States anti-Semite who testified that he wanted to kill Jewish people and was sentenced to death after he shot and killed three people at Jewish sites in suburban Kansas City in 2014 has died in prison. That's according to the Kansas Department of Corrections. Frazier Glenn Miller Jr., 80, died at the El Dorado Correction facility where he was serving a sentence for capital murder, attempted murder, assault, and firearms convictions. Miller drove from his home in Aurora, Missouri, determined to kill Jews. He ambushed and killed three persons, including a father and son. None were Jewish. Miller was part of a national organization of neo-Nazis united by an ideology called Christian identity, claiming only Northern Europeans are people of the Bible. The rest of us are descendants of Satan in that worldview. Heidi Byrick, then with the Southern Poverty Law Center, interviewed Miller several times. Glenn Miller was a horrible, horrible person. He is one of the giants in American white supremacy and one of the most vicious anti-Semites I've ever spoken to. I actually interviewed him quite a few times when I was working at the Southern Poverty Law Center. 
I had never heard somebody speak at a level of anti-Semitism like Glenn Miller engaged in. He was connected to the Order, which is a white supremacist terrorist gang in the 1980s, and almost every terrifying white supremacist that has been around over the years. And of course, he committed a horrific act of terrorism in Kansas at two Jewish community centers in 2014, and he killed three people there. So, uh, you know, a very, very bad person is what Glenn Miller was. Is he just one guy who's crazy? Is that what we're talking about here? It's not about one person when it comes to Fraser Glenn Miller. I mean, he led several organizations, including the White Patriot Party back in the early 90s, which wreaked havoc in North Georgia. He was a player on a major white supremacist forum, an early one called Vanguard News Network, which he moderated. He had thousands and thousands of fans in the white supremacist movement and is still celebrated online. As horrible as he was, there are a lot of people that believe in the same terrible anti-Semitism and hatred of the U.S. government that Fraser Glenn Miller believed in. And is he associated with the people who, any of the people who breathe the same air as President Donald Trump? That's unclear. What isn't unclear is the white supremacist ideas that he promoted eventually made their way into the mainstream. Hatred of immigrants, hatred of black and brown people. These ideas got into the mainstream in a way that they hadn't been when Miller was really, really active in the 90s and the early 2000s. They were brought into the mainstream by the Trump administration. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to see the mainstreaming of white supremacy. But that's what we've experienced. Heidi Byrick is a co-founder and chief strategist for the Global Project Against Hate. The groups Miller were associated with launched a terror campaign in the 1980s, including the assassination of a Jewish talk radio host in Denver, several bombings, and ended in a deadly shootout in the state of Washington. And finally, in a new book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York, we hear the story from act about the activist group and the strategies it used to force the government to address the AIDS crisis. The author of the book is Sarah Schulman. She says it all started in this city. ACTIP was founded in New York, instigated by a speech by Larry Kramer at the Gay and Lesbian Center. And people in the audience decided that they wanted to meet together and start a group. So the next day they met together and then the following week and they came up with the name ACT UP. The first action was at Wall Street, and it was about lowering the price of drugs, AIDS drugs. Because at the beginning, when the AIDS crisis was first identified, pharmaceutical companies basically wanted to recycle failed cancer drugs that they owned the patent for, most famously AZT, which a lot of people have heard of, even though these drugs did not really work for the most part. But it provided the largest market share. So that was their focus. And ACT UP had to force the government and pharmaceutical companies to restructure the way they did research so that the same drugs were not being studied over and over again and that drugs that would address opportunistic infections could be developed because the, the disease of AIDS means that your immune system doesn't work. But the market for that treatment is smaller than the concept of one drug for everyone with AIDS. So ACT UP designed a lot of research approaches and ways that people could get access to experimental drugs that had not been approved by the FDA. And when they presented these solutions, the powers that be would say no, and then ACT UP would design nonviolence, civil disobedience, direct action 
communicating through the media to force these institutions to change their policies. How do we see that today? The grassroots movement today that's closest to ACT UP would be the movement against police violence because it's being organized in a very local level, even though it's a national movement. So in each city, there are different local organizers, there are different approaches, and it's very grassroots. And ACT UP was like that as well. There were 148 ACT UP chapters, but they did not try to nationally coordinate. Sometimes they would help each other, but it really was a big tent radical democracy movement in which people were allowed to respond in a way that made sense to them. What should we learn from ACT UP? The current epidemic that we're experiencing primarily impacts on poor people, and that was true of the AIDS crisis at its height as well. But I think the best lesson we can learn from ACT UP is that ACT UP was not a consensus-based movement. They did not try to force unanimity of analysis or strategy or even language. There was only one sentence that was a principle of unity, direct action to end the AIDS crisis. And if that's what you were doing, you could do it. And so movements that really facilitate people responding in ways that make sense to them based on where they're at are movements that have the greatest chance of success. There's always been a tension in American history between utopian movements and reform movements. We really move forward the best when we have both, and they have a dynamic relationship. And Sarah Shulman is author of Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, May 5th, 2021. The news is producer Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.